since learning the truth about alcohol over four years ago, I've become pretty skeptical about anything that seems too good to be true. You know, like alcohol. If you're like me and you can spot a too good to be true health hack from a mile away, congrats, you're a skeptic too. Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. I take Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus every morning because it has high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. It's gentle on an empty stomach and has a minty essence in every bottle that helps make taking my multis actually enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com forward slash sober mom. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for 25% off. All right, you guys, I am currently struggling with a pinched nerve in my neck. And if you have ever had one, you know the pain. So I am feeling super thankful for today's sponsor, Tanasi. Tanasi's CBD, CBDA is two times better than CBD alone and better than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. It helps soothe and relieve my aches and pains, like my pinched nerve, and it's great for sleep and anxiety, so I put it on right before bed. Tanasi was discovered by a team of chemists and biologists at Middle Tennessee State University, and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university partner for ongoing research. It is THC-free and comes in a range of products. I love the topicals, but you can also choose from soft gels, gummies, and tinctures. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Try Tanasi for 30 days, and if you don't love it, you get a full refund. Go to Tanasi.com and use code MOM to get 25% off at checkout. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with promo code MOM. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram. If you are a mama who has questioned your relationship with alcohol at times, if you're wondering if maybe it's making motherhood harder, this is for you. I will be having candid, honest, funny conversations with other moms who have also thought, hmm, maybe motherhood is better without alcohol. Is it possible? We'll chat and we'll talk about all things sobriety and how we've found freedom in sobriety. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. You don't have to either. And maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey and I'm so excited to get started. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast, to the Sober Mom Life podcast. You made it. I'm so glad. Um, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. It's a Monday, which means it's a new episode. You guys, I have been waiting. If you are in the cafe, if you've listened to the Real Sober Mom Chats, you know that there is a huge blind spot in the medical community with healthcare practitioners of not talking about alcohol use, not pushing, you know, not being educated on it, all of the all of the things that we talk about. And so I needed to get 
medical doctor on here, and I have Dr. Kara Pepper. She is lovely, and not only does she know what she's talking about when it comes to alcohol, what it does to us, how it affects us, but she's also over two years sober. And so we talk about that. We talk about her journey, how it's different you know, now, how she deals with patients now versus how she did when she was drinking. And I think that the message is clear. There's a huge issue in the medical community and we get into all of it. Don't forget, if you want community and sobriety, if AA isn't for you and you're looking for a group of moms who are just, you know, badass and willing to tell the truth and be vulnerable and also laugh and dance and have fun, that's us. That's us at the Sober Mom Life Cafe. For $25 a month, you get Zoom peer support group meetings every day of the week except Saturday. We have many of them now. We have monthly book club. I record a bonus podcast episode just for that. We have our own community. It's a chat. It's a feed. It's like Facebook, but better. You guys are connecting on there all the time. You guys, it's incredible. We're also going on a retreat this week. It's our first retreat. I can't wait to tell you all about it. Also, if that sounds like a little bit too much, I understand. We also have the community for $5.95 a month. You get the Tuesday meeting and monthly book club plus your own feed and chat. So come and join us. It's a good time, I promise you. We will show you the bright side of sobriety and we will help you remember what you know and what you knew the moment you decided to quit alcohol. Okay, I think that's all I have. Other than if you love the podcast, please rate and review it. It helps so much. And now you get to enjoy this episode with Dr. Kara Pepper. Dr. Kara Pepper. First of all, I love that you're Dr. Pepper. I mean, I know. things you do for love, right? Like that's the best. I was talking to Audrey, who's my right-hand woman, and I was like, I'm going to go talk to Dr. Kara Pepper. And she was like, you are talking to Dr. Pepper? That's amazing. And I was like, oh my God, I never put it together because I'm slow. Um, but that is amazing. And so thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you want to just start by telling us your story and how you got to where you sit today in your, how long have you been sober? Uh, since November 3rd, 2021. So two and a third years. Yeah. And so what kind of led you there? I think the thing that feels very true to me now, the more and more sober I get, if you would have asked me what my drug of choice was, I would have always told you work. Work was the place both in my life prior to being a physician and certainly as a physician where I could go, I could feel like I was in control. People did what I said, mostly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or they told you they were going to do what you said, even if they... (laughs) More like my staff, maybe. But yeah, sometimes patients too. But, you know, like... (laughs) you know, when I had small children, it'd feel like chaos at home and I could come to work and feel impactful and purposeful. You know, if my marriage was on the fritz, I could come to work and feel really needed and valued. And so work was always my drug of choice, the place where I could feel really good. And I had this long history of being a professional ballet dancer before I was in medicine. So all this like perfectionism and workaholism was really part of my, my origin story. And because of that, burnout was also part of my origin story. And like many women and men, we are rewarded for what we do, not for how we recover. And so I would describe myself as kind of a binge drinker through my 20s and 30s, you know, go out on the weekends or open a bottle of wine on Fridays 
and Saturdays. And it really stayed confined in that pocket of the weekends. I never really drank during the week. It was just a way that I unwound. That was your line in the sand. That was your rule, Mm -hmm. right? Was Fridays and Saturdays. I think a lot of People have different levels of what we can tolerate when it comes to our moderation rules, right? And it makes so much sense that as a perfectionist, as a workaholic, kind of an overachiever, you were like, no, 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 this is my rule and I will stick to it, which probably made that even harder then to realize what alcohol was doing. Yes. And I come from a family of people who struggle with alcohol use. My grandfather died by suicide. My mom as alcohol-related dementia. My brother has been sober for many years. So for me, this kind of like box around alcohol was contained in Fridays and Saturdays. And when I looked at people who I considered having a problem with alcohol, I saw them drinking nightly or drinking heavily. And so it felt like I had kept it under control if I just kept drinking on Fridays and Saturdays. Mm, That's so interesting. When you say alcohol-related dementia, what is that? I mean, I know I know dementia and I know alcohol messes everything up, but could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, alcohol is a neurotoxin, so it can cause peripheral nerve damage. So like numbness, tingling of your feet, imbalances, it also impacts your brain. And so when people think of dementia, they often think of Alzheimer's, but you can absolutely have memory loss related to long-term high levels of alcohol use. Wow. Okay. And so... Your moderation rules that you set up, right, trying to control this very uncontrollable, highly addictive substance worked. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, you were fine. You were, it wasn't tearing your life apart. It wasn't um, a problem. And I say that in big quotes. Did you feel shame around your drinking? I did not have any time to feel shame around my drinking. Like if I was to feel hungover the next day. Okay, here's a here's a great example. My friends who drink more than I did would have a system for Saturday mornings. They would have water, coconut water by the bedside and a bottle of Advil and some Gatorade. And so if I considered myself to have a problem with alcohol, that would be my metric. So I never had those things. I would wake up feeling awful on Saturdays, but I would still wake up at five in the morning and just get busy taking care of kids and doing the things I need to do. See, therefore, I don't have a problem. And it was Mm. this like, just frankly doing things hungover, but the metrics that I was using for what I considered to be someone who struggled with alcohol, I never met those. Yeah, that's really interesting. And shame is... Shame is a tricky one because even if we don't have time to feel it, I always say it's like mold in the basement, right? Mm -hmm. I think shame's the most corrosive feeling because even if we don't have time to feel it, which it's really fucking hard to feel shame, it's probably one of the hardest emotions to feel, which Mm -hmm. is generally where the cyclical drinking comes in, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's it feels impossible to feel it. You guys, I promise you, you are strong enough to feel shame. I promise you. But looking it in the eye, making eye contact with shame is really fucking scary. And so it makes total sense when you say, no, I didn't even have time to feel it. Also, it was still there, right? And doing its corrosive thing. And so what happened that led you to thinking, hold on, maybe this isn't working like I thought it would? COVID. That is it. That's the story. And then COVID happened, right? It's so interesting because it is the and then COVID. And I think by COVID, you mean the pandemic response too, right? Yes. As a healthcare worker trying to hold everything together, I was under a lot of stress. And Friday and Saturday became more and more, quote, 
necessary. As they say in recovery, you know, it's not how much you drink, but how you drink. Like it wasn't just that I wanted to unwind. I wanted to like obliterate my brain in a way that I never had. I wanted to turn it all off. I didn't want to think, I didn't want to feel. And that really accelerated in those 2020, 2021 years. Yes. The, and then COVID stories. I do think that just now we are starting to do this kind of analysis of even if we didn't lose anybody to COVID, right? We all collectively lost so much Mm -hmm. and that it feels like it just kind of lingered. There was no funeral, right? There was no end. There was no demarcation of like, okay, now this is done. And now let's mourn and process what we all collectively lost, whether that's, you know, I mean, I, I did lose my dad, but if it's our moderation rules that we had so carefully set up, if it's our pride, if it's our um, sanity in trying to homeschool children while also nursing a baby and all of these things, if it's relationships or weddings or anything like that, right? And so we haven't, I think, as a nation been able to look back. So COVID ramped it up because of course, like, of course you wanted not to feel and not to think and not to be on. Like it makes so much sense. Yeah. And my COVID bubble was doctors and lawyers. So we would get together on the weekends and everyone would drink and the kids would run around. And it wasn't quote, a problem. There was no rock bottom. It's not like there was something happening, but it became ingrained in my social circle that that's just what you did. It it became the way that we unwound at the end of the week. And for the first time you mentioned shame, but like that fear that like, maybe I can't not do this. Or what would it be like if I showed up as the sober person in this circle of people that I've been friends with for a long time? Like that felt harder than ever. And I started to worry, but I certainly didn't want to talk about how I was worried about it. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Because when you said it's, it wasn't a problem, and I totally understand because it sounds like from society standards, it's not. It's all of the yets. Well, I haven't, I mean, I, I haven't gotten a DUI dot, dot, dot yet. A lot of ellipses in there and waiting. And yeah, what are you waiting for? And so what happened? Uh, a series of things. But in short, I, for the first time in my life, felt mortal. Like I knew I would had the potential to show up at work and die from a contagious illness. And it really made me look at how I was overworking. And I ultimately decided to make a big job change. So I left a practice that I'd been with for a long time and started my own medical practice. And in that process was working with a coach and a therapist to say, what do I want to leave behind and what do I want to bring with me? And it was very clear to me that I did not want to bring this reliance to unwind with alcohol, but I certainly did not want to say that. So that's the first of three kind of bullet points. The second was that I started to pull out of this social group and I ended up hanging out with a different group of friends that were not big drinkers. And after a dinner party at someone's house, the host called me two days later and said, I can't live with myself if I don't say this to you. I shouldn't have let you drive home on Saturday. I feel really bad about that. And I was like, Mm. oh, no, you know, I didn't drink that much. I only had two drinks. And she said, you had five. And what I Mm. didn't tell her was that I drove to someone else's house, had another bottle of wine, and then drove myself home. And yes, I was impaired, but that's not what bothered me. What bothered me was that someone called me out on the thing that I'd been trying to keep down and keep secret. Like she just spoke it in a compassionate, loving way to say, I'm just worried. I shouldn't have let you drive. So that was the second point. And then the third thing was that I went on this fabulous vacation. It was like my first 
post-vaccination, maybe we can enter the world again vacation with two of my deepest girlfriends. And at the end of that week, I remembered three out of the six days that I was there. And we had just been at the beach having a great time. There was no like tattoo or STD that I came back from. Like it, it just, it was sucking my joy. And it was that realization that I was like, it's not just pain avoidance, like the things that I really value, it's really starting to take away from me. And so my last drink was in the airport on the way home from that vacation. And as oh, it wow. turns out, I called my brother when I got home and said, hey, I'm thinking about not drinking anymore. And that day was the three-year anniversary of his sobriety date. And it also is my mom's birthday. And so if I needed a little nudge from the universe, that was it. Oh, wow. That's incredible. And so you you guys celebrate together. We do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Me too. I also, you know, as someone with five tattoos, I love the idea of of <laughs> tattoo being as as horrific as an STD. <laughs> Girl, I have them too. It's, I'm just like okay. I didn't come back with like a full black back piece or something. Okay. Like, okay. Okay. <laughs> there was no permanent scar. Like, I was like, no I mean. tattoos or STDs. I was like, wow, that elevated. Okay. No, no, no. Yes. I don't. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I do. I do. Oh my God. There's so much there. What jumps out to me right away is your friend calling you and kind of giving oxygen to this thing. Yeah. You didn't stop drinking right then, but now looking back, you see that as a big building block in your story. Yes, absolutely. And to this day, she is the only person who has ever said anything to me about drinking. Wow. And that's, I think that's really the take-home thing. Like For any of your listeners who may be thinking of someone that they're worried about, or if they themselves have had someone say something, like it was such a brave moment for my friend to just say that to me, to like potentially risk, you know, what would I think of her? And she and I have had this conversation in the years after that. And my recollection of that conversation was just like this massive spotlight, like a, you know, stage light shining on me. Like I can't avoid this conversation. And from her standpoint, she was just like, Hey, I just, I love you. I just wanted to let you know, I'm worried about you. It was a very benign comment from her standpoint, but that the fact that she said something profoundly changed the direction of of not just my drinking, but my life in general. And so never underestimate those small things can really make a big difference. Yes, for sure. And I'm willing to bet that she probably, um, you know, I, I, I hate to use the term healthy relationship with alcohol because I think it's like saying healthy relationship with cigarettes mm -hmm. and it's just kind of like not a thing, but she has done some work around it. Maybe her eyes are open to her relationship with alcohol because what I have begun to know, is that true? Do you think? I mean, not to talk about your friend, but. I think that human brain is really fascinating and why some people get really hooked on alcohol and other people don't. Why can some people have one drink and it doesn't impact their brain that way and other people really struggle with addiction? I think she's one of those people that can have a cocktail when she feels like it and it's not a thing for her, you know, but it's a big thing in my brain. Yeah. Right. And and I think the trick and what we've all been duped into believing is that she is the majority. We're taught that she's a normal drinker and alcohol would not be a $1.3 trillion business if she was the normal drinker. Okay. So your last drink was after your vacation. Mm -hmm. So then you come home. What do you do? Like, what's the first thing you do when you were drinking at the airport? Did you, 
Did you know that was your last drink? How did you think about it all? How did you frame it in your mind? Uh, My brother gave me some really good advice when I called him the day I got home. And he said, when he quit, forever felt way too big. So he said, I'm just going to give myself a month. And if I can come up with a reason to drink that outweighs the reasons that I'm quitting, I'll consider it. Not I will start drinking again, but I'll, I give myself the option, but it has to be a good reason. And it bought me a month, right? I told no one except for my husband and my children and my immediate circle of friends. I did not go to AA. This was clearly based in shame, but I was like, I'm just going to do it in a month. And I had done dry January many times. I had quit drinking for six months. Actually, the first six months of 2020, I was sober. And so I knew that I could do a month. And I'm so grateful that I had those try and fail experiments in the past because I don't look at it as failure. I look at it as data collection. Like, So when I yeah. reached the end of November, I was like, I know what's going to happen if I start this again. I'm going to go right back to what I was doing before because that's what's happened every single time I've quit in the past. Then I said, okay, if I made it through November, then let me just see what December looks like. But there was absolutely a small part of me that didn't want it, that was not the loudest part of me, but that knew in my bones that I could not go back. Mm-hmm. But I needed I needed to create safety around that part. So that's why I like time boxing it. Like I'm just going to do a month and see what, see what that looks like. Yes. I love that idea and the idea to take 30 days and the idea that you are bringing all of those other 30 days that you've taken, you're bringing those six months with you. Those are coming with. Mm -hmm. And like the you who is now deciding has never decided before, right? Mm -hmm. You have never, you are not the you who did it six months ago. You have never existed as you are now and you're bringing all of that with you. And I think that that's super valuable. And that's why the kind of day one talk and like, oh, I'm starting over can feel so punitive and not motivating. At least for me, that's how I felt. And yes, this is the forever question. Mm -hmm. It can be a really powerful way that our brain gets in the way of our sobriety and our, and it's fear of unknown and forever. And it's just so interesting because we never have to answer it for anything else. We're never asked about it for anything else. If I tell my husband I'm going to the gym today, I'm going to start I'm going to start working out, which I already work out, but let's just say he's not going to say, you mean like forever? <laughs> like I don't know. What and when will I know? Okay, so if forever's the goal, when will I know? When I'm dead then I'll celebrate? Yeah. It's too big. It's so big. That's always why I've always come back to I'm sober for good right? And that's for the good of me and for the good of my relationships and my mental health and my physical health and my future and my past and everything, right? Yeah, because forever, like that'll take care of itself. You guys do not worry about forever. Throw it out. Throw it out. And I love the idea that your brother said, like, write down did you write it down or did you just have the list in your in your mind of like the reasons to stop drinking? I love the idea of like writing it down. Like, why are, okay, what has brought us here? Like, why are we making this decision? Write the list. And then if ever there comes something that could maybe be more important than all of those things on the list, you'll consider it. Yeah. So yes, I wrote it down. Because I think my brain is like very crafty. It is really, like it will come up with really seemingly compelling reasons. So 
hey, it's just one drink, but you look at the list and it's like, because I want to model this for my children, because I don't want to have dementia, because I don't want to die of cancer. Like, oh, actually that feels like a totally imbalanced decision. So yeah, the decision to stay sober gets easier. Right. And then it's like, oh, because Susie might judge me. Oh, well, who cares about Susie then, right? Like mm-hmm. when we talk about, and yes, my name's Suzanne, but I don't judge anybody. Okay. So after the 30 days, did you ever go to AA? Are you in AA? I am not. I mentioned the shame. That was a part of it. So I, I would describe my first year as being quietly sober. And then I talked very publicly about it on social media when I had that one year anniversary. I got hundreds of DMs and emails from a lot of physicians and healthcare workers saying, me too, me too, me too. But it was the thought of like, oh, wow, that's so great. I didn't know you had you're, you had a drinking problem or oh, I'm so proud of you for getting sober. I immediately had this massive shame spiral then. It was like a year delay mm. because I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not that kind of drinker. What is that? You know, we can talk about what that is. But, but it really made me reconcile that. And the more sober I get now, two years and four months, whatever, it is very clear to me how much denial and cognitive dissonance I had as an individual, but particularly as a healthcare worker. And when I look around at all of my colleagues, like they haven't kind of internalized that yet. Like there's an old kind of not funny rule in medicine that like, as long as your patient drinks less than you do, they're doing okay. Like what the actual F is that, right? Like that really points to the fact that we don't know, right? And we have our own bias around alcohol. You just said the quiet part out loud, I think. So as long as your patient is drinking, (laughs) tell me again. (laughs) (laughs) As long as your patient is drinking less than you are, then they're okay. Yes. Okay. So on the podcast I have on Fridays, we have the Real Sober Mom Chats. And those are women from the membership who just come on, who have never shared their story before, and who just share the story. And it's generally, it's not groundbreaking. It's it's not rock bottom. And I always say those are the most important stories to tell. And almost in every one, and I've been doing this podcast for two and a half years, it comes to a point where they, they're looking, right? They're looking for someone to say. They're looking for either permission, guidance, of someone to say, hey, you know, well, I am drinking, you know, two glasses of wine. Oh, no, that's fine. It comes up all the time that they're going to their doctor and either waiting for the doctor to ask. Like, generally, it's about anxiety, right? We're, we're all moms. And, you know, I had postpartum anxiety, OCD. And if it's anxiety, if it's depression, if it's just whatever, your primary care physician, going in and I think especially around the mental health conversations. And then the doctor just either skirts over it, says, no, that's fine. Is There's not a conversation. And so it's only then when they stop drinking that they look back and say, holy shit, why didn't my doctor say, do you know that alcohol causes anxiety? <laughs> like, even if it's just an informed consent piece, like, did you know what alcohol does to the brain? Oh, okay. Well, let me just tell you just as just to let you know. And and that can be a building block, right? But I think it's an easy assumption and it's a it's a short jump to assume that they're not doing that overall because they themselves are not willing to look at their relationship with alcohol. 
I think it's a couple of things. I think as a primary care physician and knowing that our healthcare system is in total crisis, like I have 15 minutes to address every issue that could possibly show up for a patient. Like there's simply not enough Mm -hmm. time. And so we kind of address the acute issues. But yes, also our own internal bias or shame in some situations is absolutely a piece of that. And so like you would never, ever go to like the beach for melanoma awareness day, right? Like you would not have like skin cancer screenings and on a sunny day at the beach, you would not go to a hookah lounge for lung cancer prevention, but you will absolutely have wine and cheese at a breast cancer fundraiser. And we know that alcohol causes cancer. Yes. The Susan G. Komen bottle, like it, it'll yes. be on the bottle. Yes. Yes. That's and insane. So real cognitive dissonance. And I, I think the data has gotten really skewed over the years, thinking that moderation is safe. And the growing body of modern evidence is really there is no safe amount of alcohol. The World Health Organization just came out and said that, right? That's exactly right. But that has definitely not gotten into America marketing and mindset. Well, and I totally can appreciate how, I mean, you feel it, right? Like how pressed doctors are. And, and yes, you're kind of dealing with the problem, the acute issue that they're coming in, whatever they're presenting with, right? Yeah. I just don't see how alcohol, how you don't start there because it does affect everything. And so the idea that there might not be time when it really could be the genesis of a lot of these things, it feels backwards. Yes. My clinical practice is primarily focused on eating disorder care. And half of folks who struggle with eating disorders have substance use or alcohol use um, in the background. And so Mm -hmm. I see that very clearly as part of the patients I take care of. You just need to be a woman in America or a man, anyone. You know, weight is kind of a similar paradigm, which is like, oh, if you just lose weight, it'll fix all your problems. We're just going to hyper-focus on this one thing and not focus on some other things. And I think alcohol just gets wrapped up into that. It takes time. It takes awareness. It takes acknowledging your own biases as a caregiver. It takes understanding that this is not how we're educated. And so really finding someone who has the time and capacity to slow down and really listen, I think is part of how we rewire how we deliver care. And I'm so interested in when you said it's not a part of how you were educated, because you guys have a lot of ongoing education requirements and everything, right? Doesn't medicine and the science change like every five minutes? Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And so what is the education piece around alcohol? Like, what are doctors taught? So we're taught like the physiology and the biochemistry around that. And we're taught to like look for signs related to alcohol use. Is that like elevated liver enzymes and and yeah. stuff like that? Like where it's where it's like a kind of active addiction situation. Yes, and i I think that's it. Like we, I think we all, as humans, and particularly as healthcare workers, have a picture in our mind of what someone who struggles with alcohol looks like. You know, this rock bottom kind of picture, but like mommy culture, hashtag wine time, like that's not part of that picture that we have in our minds. And so there's this concept called gray drinking or gray area drinking, which is 
been around for like 10 years, but Jolene Park, who's an integrative nutritionist, kind of made that yeah, term she was on. You guys. Oh, she was. Yeah. Yeah. We'll link that. She was on last year. I think we'll link that um, episode in the show notes too. Yeah. But she really, through her TED Talk, really kind of popularized mm-hmm. this term, which I think really gets to this place of you're not a teetotaler, you're not someone with chemical addiction, but you've got high-risk alcohol use, meaning you're using it or overusing it, but you don't have a diagnosis. And so it's exactly, I mean, look, like me as a doctor, I was Googling like how many drinks are too many or like how do I know I have an alcohol problem as if I don't know what the diagnostic criteria are. But this concept really put words around that. Like it doesn't look like a problem based on societal standards, but I was worried that it was a problem. It's like I vacillated between like, maybe I should cut back, but like, just live a little, like, look, everyone else is like having more than you are. It's right. not I'm not that bad. That yes. bad, right? Like there's no rock bottom. There's no DUI. There's no thing, but you know, in your yes. bones, even though you try to avoid that. So it's this like high risk behavior and like 30% of women are already in that. Right. And so we, this is a real thing. And so this is certainly not meant to demonize anyone who struggles with alcohol addiction, but like for me to say there's words to describe this thing that I have that I don't meet criteria for alcohol use disorder, but like it's high risk enough that I need to take this seriously. And that's the piece that's not being taught in healthcare. You either have a problem or you don't have a problem and we're missing everyone who's in between. Right. Because there's just such a huge blind spot in alcohol being a problem. Yeah. I mean, alcohol is a problem. It just look at it. Like look at what it is, look at what it's made up and look at how it affects our our physical body and our mental health. Like no one no one's arguing that cigarettes are a problem. Yeah. And alcohol is the same. It's worse. Yeah, it's worse. Do you hear that you guys? I didn't say that. Dr. Kara Pepper said that. <laughs> so, she's on the record. Can I have you sign something after? Sure. Um <laughs> You're like, I'll sign. I'm so interested. How did your practice change when you deal with patients and talking to them about their alcohol use after you stopped drinking? It changed in several ways. One is that I didn't feel a hesitancy in having the conversation. I would just name the thing I was worried about in a different way. Not just like, oh, are you worried about your drinking? And then the person would be like, no. But to say, What's really common in someone who's struggling with anxiety is that they feel better when they drink alcohol, but actually it's making things worse. Have you ever experienced that or have you ever stopped drinking? Like more granular kind of questions. Yes. Amen. And because like that's the thing. And no matter what your patient tells you, right, that what you said right there, she's not going to forget. Yeah. She's not going she's not going to even if she says, "Oh no, I think it's fine," or uh, if she lies or whatever whatever she does yeah. from then, you saying that as a healthcare professional will be a part of her story, whatever her story is. That's right. And the other part was just a reckoning for myself, right? Like I it very much felt like I do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. So like for me to tell someone to stop drinking when I felt kind of unable or unwilling to do that myself. So now because I've written about this and talked on many podcasts about it and whatever to say, like, I quit drinking two and a half years ago. And let me just tell you like how much that changed my mental health, my relationships, whatever. And like, I don't have a problem looking someone in the eye. I mean, like, I know you don't think this is a problem now. Like I know where you're headed. And I can say that from personal experience. It's not from moral superiority. It's like, I'm in the trenches with you and I totally get it. And so I don't know. It just makes the conversations a lot more straightforward 
And I don't have shame that's keeping me back from having those conversations. And it's, I mean, you guys have come back to do no harm, right? Yeah. There is a harm reduction model in this. I know that, of course, you and I, I think are on the same page in terms of like, there's no safe amount of alcohol and gray drinking kind of gives us words around that. But the new term that I've heard this year is instead of dry January, damp January. Right. Which is just a way to say like, if it feels impossible to cut back to zero, what would it be like to cut back some degree? And that's, again, this try and fail process. It's information for the day that you're really ready to make a more assertive decision. It really helps. It's just talking about something. Yeah. It's examining before we then excavate, right? If you're not ready to excavate, you're going to at least open your eyes. We're going to talk and we're not going to, you're not going to be sentenced, right? To a life of anonymity and deprivation that you're missing out on something that was a privilege, right? It's not that anymore. It's let's just talk about, hey, how do you feel after drinking two glasses of wine the morning after? Is there shame there? Can we talk? Let's talk about that shame because it's not going anywhere. And so, yes, and all of the damp January, even the dry January, you know, like taking 30 days off, going back, like any break that you give your body from alcohol, your your mind and your body from alcohol is a win. Like that's always, and, and yeah, like you said, it's coming with you, all of it. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Okay. What? Oh, I wanted to ask you about, because you said that you specialize with eating disorders and something that happens, I'm seeing kind of, I mean, not, not a lot, but probably more often than, you know, turning to pot or something is that if someone is, has a history of disordered eating and then is sober, then their disordered eating kind of rears its head. Because in sobriety, you know, especially in those early months, maybe in the first year, the focus is more on like treat yourself with sweets or, you know, well, for me, it's coffee well, and sugar. Um, It's more focused on food, right? And then so those behaviors are kind of coming back. And so what tips would you give? Would you give anyone who's now they're like, great, yeah, I'm not drinking. But now my disordered eating has kind of reared its head again. Yeah. I would look at it like anticipatory guidance. Like alcohol is serving you in some capacity. I mean, yes, it's creating problems, but yeah, it's doing something. So is it how you're treating your anxiety? Is it how you're dealing with social situations? Is it how you're escaping really uncomfortable marital dynamics? I don't know. So like part is to one, dig up what is alcohol serving for you? And to say, when you give up this coping skill, your brain is going to find other ways to try to help you feel better. And that sometimes shows up as over under eating. It shows up in relationship changes. It may show up in shopping. It may show up in other substances. So anticipate that that may be part of this. And then how can we build a scaffold of support around you? And so, you know, AA meetings is one of those strategies you mentioned before. But I think, again, dispelling the shame. So like, who are your support people? Who knows that you're you're doing this? Are you seeing a therapist? Are you seeing a coach? Who is giving you like regular support? Because it's not if you need it, it's when you need it. So just preemptively saying like, I'm going to get this stuff on board. If you decided you wanted to start a new gym routine, you wouldn't be like, well, I'll just see how it goes. And maybe I'll buy some tennis shoes. You'd be like, no, let me like prepare for all the things that I need. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to drink water, whatever. And so it's no different than that. 
So like noticing what you're trying to treat and then building a system of support around that and anticipating that it's going to feel like whack-a-mole for a while. Yes. Yes. Anticipating because I think a lot of times that, yeah, that kind of shock of like, oh, great. Now, well, I did this and now I have this. And so anticipating that I think is takes a lot of that kind of, yeah, that pressure off. For anybody who's listening to this, who's got that, first of all, if you're listening to this, I mean, welcome and 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 you're doing it, right? You're opening your eyes to what alcohol is and, and how you've used it to cope and numb and escape and all of the things. But what would you tell them, you know, if they're in there first, maybe they just did dry January and they're like, I'm going to keep going. How do I do that? Uh, we've mentioned several, one of which is having a actual written down list that you can come back to and remind yourself of why you're doing this. I think education around alcohol is really important because sometimes if you're like me, just having the data like, oh yeah, I totally normalized drinking a carcinogen. Like I spend all day telling people how to not get breast cancer and then I go home and drink alcohol. Like what, what's the gap there? So I think understanding that alcohol causes cancer, like eight or nine different types of cancers, causes heart failure and arrhythmias, it causes dementia. So like, is that the future that you want? And like, you know, sometimes that information is helpful. And then dispelling shame and secrecy. So like, who, who are your people? And for a lot of people giving up alcohol, the real fear is giving up their social support. Like, what does that mean? And I would just love to tell you that my relationships are deeper, more meaningful, more connected, more vulnerable in a way without alcohol. That was absolutely impossible to me with alcohol. And while, yes, that may mean that you need to shift some or all of your friends, it is so worth it because one day we will all die. (laughs) And when you look back on this season of your life, because this is the way you want to spend it, like what would you regret doing or not doing right now? And that thing in your bones that you know, that little whisper that keeps like nagging at you, like just listen. It may be easy to quiet it down, but it's going to become a roar the more you resist it. And so you know in your bones what you need to do. Amen. I want I want to give like, n- Laura, do like a hallelujah. hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This was a, everything I wanted it to be and more. This is exactly why I wanted to have someone in the medical community on. Where can everybody find you? Yeah. So I'm licensed in 17 states. So if you're looking for eating disorder care or someone who's going to spend an hour with you and let you kind of work through some of these things, happy to take care of people clinically. But then I do a lot of work. The other part of my job is to do a lot of executive coaching, wellness coaching, mindset shift stuff, particularly for women, particularly for healthcare workers. And that is what I talk about on social media. So you can find me. You can remember my name, Kara with a K, K-A-R-A Pepper, M-D is my handle on every platform. So come follow me. Good. Okay, we'll link everything in the show notes so you guys can easily find her. Kara, thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for the work you do. Everyone needs to hear this because it's the voice they're trying to quieten their brain and you're just saying it out loud. So thank you for it. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay, I'll see you next week. I'm going to go reheat my coffee. Bye.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.